Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. We decided to take a little field trip. All right, we're here. Okay, Miller House. A couple minute drive, not bad. My brother and I took a short drive to the National Elk Refuge outside Jackson, Wyoming. It is stunning out here. So we, we, uh, we're walking on the National Elk Refuge and uh, there are no elk out here right now. It's this big open grassy plain and just off to the east of this gorgeous, gorgeous place, a little bowl surrounded by mountains, is this cabin tucked off to the side with a couple little outbuildings that are really well kept up. But it's green, it's lush, birds are chirping, it's idyllic. We approached a man named Jim sitting on the lawn of a log home, enjoying the view. Have a seat in my office. I apologize for the view, you know. (laughs) It was the maid's day off, so we haven't cleaned the the plate class yet. Just north of the National Elk Refuge are the sharp peaks of the Teton Mountain Range and Grand Teton National Park, which is the eighth most visited national park in the United States. It now gets more than 3.5 million visitors annually. People love this place. However, even though it was clearly a great idea, it was difficult to get this park established. The first attempt to expand Yellowstone National Park to include this area failed. But in 1929, 96,000 acres were set aside for a new park which included those spiky mountains and six of the lakes in the valley. But one man thought, that's just not enough. That man was Horace Albright, Yellowstone's superintendent. Albright could see that businesses were encroaching on the pristine landscape, ruining the ecosystem. Okay, so Albright, Albright has has figured out, hey, this is not gonna work in this whole situation. But already, and this is, somewhere late 20s, early 30s, already on the inside park, there's already, uh, today it would be McDonald's and Starbucks. Back then it was rodeos and and, uh, gas stations and stop and robs and whatever, all along the park road, which they have since gotten rid of. So Albright takes Rockefeller up to the top, up there close to Two Ocean Lake, and shows him this and explains that there's not any government funding to buy any of this land in order to expand the park. John D. Rockefeller Jr. decided to buy the land, but it had to be done in secret. If anyone knew that a Rockefeller was buying up the land, they'd inflate the prices and stall the park. It's one thing to sell your house to any person off the street. It's another thing to haggle with the richest man maybe ever. Miller is the purchasing agent. He's the banker. He's the purchasing agent for for this adventure. It's called the Snake River Land Company. Rockefeller is hidden by, behind two or three curtains behind that. I mean, he's not out with front with this. And even today, there are some second and third generation people who are pretty upset about all that. The Snake River Land Company acted on behalf of the Rockefellers. 
They then intended to donate the property to the National Park Service. Remember, this was all done on the DL. Some people are still upset about it to this day. They really are. Why, why would you be upset if Rockefeller bought your land? Why, I mean, he paid the money. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He paid the money. But remember, we're talking, about, we're talking about second and third generation from that. They felt like if they had known that Rockefeller was behind the whole adventure, that they could have held out for more money. But it all boils down to money. A man named Robert Miller was made purchasing agent for the Snake River Land Company. This is Come his on. house. My wife can tell you all about the inside of the house. That's your wife? Yes. Oh my goodness. Who do you say I think I sit in church with? I, I don't know. <laughs> Robert Miller was also the superintendent of the Bridger Teton National Forest. It was the largest home at the time. He was the third homesteader in the valley. So what you see when you come in here is circa 1930s decorations. And he was also the head of the Jackson State Bank, right? When they sold here and they moved to town, he started the Jackson State Bank. Yes, he was president till he died in 1934. And, and, and he was known as old 12 percenter. <laughs> he charged 12 percent interest. So that was a lot of money back then. And it, is too, it is today, it too. It is today, yeah. He had a practice of loaning hay to the new homesteaders that cut, would come in. <laughs> they came too late to raise a crop because there's only a 90-day growing period. So they get here, couldn't grow any hay, and he'd say, no problem, I'll loan you a, a ton to get you through the winter. Pay me back in the spring. So they'd come in the spring with their ton of hay to pay Robert back, and he'd say, oh no, I get a ton and a half. I loaned you a ton, I get a ton and a half back. So he was a wheeler dealer, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Old 12% and his wife were obviously ambitious. And Grace, his wife, ran for mayor in 1920, was elected and had the all-female council. And first woman mayor in Wyoming. And 1920 was before women were voting anywhere else. The suffrage amendment hadn't passed. But with Wyoming being the equality state, women were voting when this was a territory. Miller purchased all of the land. All that remained was for Rockefeller to hand it over. But the U.S. government, surprise, would not accept. Finally, after a number of years of doing, of this going back and forth and back and forth, Rockefeller went to Congress and said, listen, either you take this land that I'm trying to give to you, or I'm going to take it to the open market and sell it for whatever it brings, and whatever happens, happens. Why didn't the government accept $1.4 million in free land? Well, the National Park Service was met with resistance. Tell me, if the Park Service is getting opposition from someone in the West, who do you think it'll be? Odds are, it's ranchers. Ranchers and farmers wanted to continue grazing cattle in the valley. In 1925, a group of 97 ranchers endorsed a petition saying, The destiny of Jackson Hole is as a playground, typical of the West, for the education and enjoyment of the nation as a whole. They wanted a different kind of playground. Not one where people could go out on hikes and kayak, one that preserved the natural habitat of moose and elk. They wanted a playground for farmers, for business purposes. The National Park's official document about this event kind of shuts down their argument. Turns out the land is not great for ranching. 
it's difficult to produce grass and the soil is very rocky. Not to mention the short growing season and brutal winters. Just ask anyone in Jackson who tries to grow tomatoes in their gardens. It took 15 years for the government to finally accept the land. In 1943, Franklin Roosevelt designated it as a national monument. Eventually, it became part of the national park system. The land around the Miller House was designated as the National Elk Refuge. And today, millions of people come through to enjoy these open spaces. And it was made possible by the son of the wealthiest man in the history of the world. But at what cost? The whole endeavor demonstrates a key facet of American life, something that bleeds into our churches, funny enough. We like to think that our churches are egalitarian, that they aren't swayed by money. Yet, some of us, those with significant financial resources like the Rockefellers, sometimes have a greater say than others. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Sterren, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. We now have Grand Teton National Park and the National Elk Refuge, but at what cost? Again, not the dollar amount, but think about where the money came from. In our last episode, we examined the life of John D. Rockefeller Sr. He was a Christian, but also a shrewd businessman. He did anything he could to beat back his competition, even to the point of breaking the law, begging the question, was it worth it? Was it worth the cutthroat business practices and the environmental consequences of pumping that much oil? Making Cleveland a place where the river caught on fire more than once. Was that a good trade? Sure, wealthy people can provide great things for society, like national parks. But does it matter to us where the money comes from? Rockefeller Sr. treated his employees well, but what if he hadn't? Would it have been worth the human misery in order to protect Jackson Hole? You know, the United States government could have just purchased the land in the first place without Rockefeller. If the people had demanded it, they could have protected the land. But the people didn't demand it. One rich guy did. In a democracy where everyone is supposed to have a vote, 
are we okay with one person's word being worth more than someone else's? See how tricky this gets? Now, don't get caught up in the politics. We're not talking about Citizens United or hippy-dippy ideas. We're talking about the church. And here's why. Say your congregation wants to renovate the kitchen like ours did a few years ago. Perhaps a rich person says, I'll donate $50,000 to renovate the kitchen. I think I'd be elated to hear that if I were an elder or trustee. But... On one condition. This time, there's a catch. The local chapter of the Offensive and Ridiculous Political Action Committee will meet there every Monday night. Now, your church, which may just want to renovate the kitchen, has to decide. Do you put up with these demands, or do you hold your ground? Yes, the kitchen is going to be built, but with a few conditions. Conditions, by the way, that the average member of the church can't impose because they don't have the kind of money that this one rich person does. Now, let's ratchet this up a notch. I'll donate $100,000 if you end each service by singing the doxology. That's not so bad. It's just one song at the end of the service. But it does mean a little step towards liturgy, which your church may or may not be into. Can one person just decide the order of worship for a whole congregation? What about this one? I've got the check in my pocket right now. It'll pay to re-roof the whole church. You can have it if the pastor changes his position on gay marriage. Or... I'll give you the money, but only if you agree to fire the youth pastor. Can one person, or one family, or a coalition of wealthy people make hiring decisions over the wisdom of elders, deacons, and trustees? If I'm going to donate this much money, Shouldn't I have a say in how it's spent? Should they? I mean, really, should they? I don't know the answer. The reality is that wealthy people can have an outsized amount of influence in our churches. If a poor person doesn't get their way, the stakes are probably not that high. In the case we just covered, what if the kitchen project were started with the understanding that the money was there? It was a sure thing. Then, a major donor threatened to pull out of the deal. That could leave a church in real financial trouble. And in that case, demands can be made. When a church relies on a few wealthy donors, we set ourselves up for trouble. This is an excerpt from an interview I did with a youth pastor named Ryan. The comment you left on Reddit was, the last church I left had no checks and it showed poorly. Basically, the folks with all the money had all the say. Super toxic atmosphere, and I believe that that doesn't belong in the church. Uh, would you be able to tell me, maybe without being too specific about the organization, uh, what was going on? Right. Obviously, I don't want to get into too many specifics, but the general idea was there was almost a premium put on people who uh, donated more. Uh, for instance, the the pastor would 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 ask for people to to uh, give offerings above and beyond and he would actually put a verbal dollar amount on it and then people would come up you know that we're going to be giving those offerings and he would pray for them specifically you know for you know extra blessings or whatever um and the our top donors like top top donors most of them were the church board um so you can understand that a lot of key decisions 
um, and, and a lot of the perspective from the outside and the inside of the church is that it was entirely driven by the interests of the top donors. Next, you'll hear comments left on a Reddit thread that I started. They read here my actors. I really think the check is in saying no and meaning it, knowing they may take their money and go. But that's a lot easier said than done. Probably the other good check would be to have multiple large givers, but you can't control that. I'd also consider a rainy day fund that the church should have. It's a good idea no matter what, but it could help the church to weather a wealthy giver leaving. Everything runs through a committee with each person on the committee getting an equal voice and vote. For a building project, there would be a group in charge of financing, a group in charge of the physical changes, and a group who makes the decision with the recommendations of these groups. The churches I've been a part of have operated on influence. When I took my pastoral training, I was told each church is run by one lady. My first job as a preacher was to find that woman and make friends. Wealth does not bring influence, but if a wealthy giver comes up against the lady of power, it's no contest. The lady wins everything. In 40 years, it's always been the same. I once had someone tell me that since they gave $10,000 to the youth ministry, that I had to listen to them. I had to politely tell them that that's not how church works. My grandfather was a pastor up until he died. I remember a story that relates to this topic. In the early days of his pastorship, he'd get the checks out of the donation plate and deposit them in the church's account. This caused him to know who his biggest givers were, and eventually found himself pulling punches in his preaching for fear of losing the funding. He and my dad, his son, spoke, and my dad told him he needed to have someone else handle the money so that he would no longer be aware of who gave what and when. My personal church relies on a robust elder and trustees board who would hopefully flag any attempts at using leverage. But I couldn't find any churches with concrete policies in place to prevent one wealthy member or a group of members from taking control, which is a little scary, though it wasn't an exhaustive search. If your church has special policies, please send me an email at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. That brings us to the trade-off. Is it worth it? In the Rockefeller story, the people of the U.S. got a beautiful chunk of land, but at the cost of fair competition in the oil business. In our local church example, the kitchen gets built, but only if we agree to the demands of one person over the desires of the rest of the congregation. This could get even more complicated. Let's say that your church is in a company town. Maybe it's located next to the headquarters of a large furniture manufacturing company. Let's call it the New England Ugly Wooden Chair Company. Most of the people who attend the church work there. The pastor is expected to attend company picnics, and the New England Ugly Wooden Chair Company says it's going to donate $200,000 to fix up the fellowship hall. That sounds great, doesn't it? It'll mean a cleaner, safer place for church functions, and it won't cost your congregation much at all. That's the upshot. What could possibly be the downside? Well, it turns out that our fake chair company has been polluting the water. There is a cancer cluster downstream from the factory. You, as the pastor, know about it. You're also aware of the terrible working conditions in their factories in Bangladesh. 
even with the pending cancer lawsuit, they are still willing to pay for the fellowship hall renovations. If you're the pastor or elders of the church, what do you do? Do you accept the money from the company or not? Remember, your congregation is made up of a lot of people from the New England Ugly Wooden Chair Company. They are going to want you to take the money. However, what does it look like to the outside world when we take money from bad sources, from companies that poison people, that don't treat their employees well? It's one thing to object to where the money comes from. It's quite another to object to where it goes. Should churches accept money obtained in an unethical way? Will we, as people, allow bad behavior so long as it brings us a few good outcomes that benefit us? Let's make this interesting. We'll dig the hole a little deeper. What if the chair company doesn't pay their workers a living wage, so their employees can't afford to eat a proper meal? Will you say something? Now, what if the chair company decides that it's going to pay a bunch of money to stock a food pantry at your church? That sounds like a good solution. But what's really happening is that the company gets away with paying too little by making a show of their charity. It'll pay less for a goodwill gesture that it can publicize than a wage increase that it can't. What if your church or ministry is backed by one of these organizations. It could mean that you're being played in exchange for good publicity. While it might seem harmless to accept the money, taking it could be seen as an implicit affirmation of the company. It could, in the long run, destroy your witness. Would you, the pastor, the elder board, be able to confront a company that is poisoning the local water? or mistreating its employees, even in a company town? Would you be able to stand up to one wealthy person or coalition of wealthy people in the name of doing the right thing? Ask around, are there any checks in place to prevent leveraging in your local church? We're going to end today with a reading from the Bible. This is James 2, 1 through 9, excerpted here from the Streetlights Audio Bible. James 2, a warning against prejudice. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin and you are guilty of breaking the law.
Special thanks to Streetlights Audio Bible for letting us use the Bible reading. You can learn more about their ministry at streetlightsbible.com. Special thanks to Nick Starin for his help reporting on Grand Teton National Park and the National Elk Refuge. Thanks also to the volunteers who spoke with us and to our actors who helped to illustrate our point. Truce is a listener-supported show. You can donate on Patreon, PayPal, and more at trucepodcast.com. Pray for us, spread the word, and if you can, please help us take this thing full-time. I'm about $3,000 in the hole on this project as of now. Your help would be really appreciated. Check out my films Bringing Out Bobby and Between the Walls on Amazon Prime and Pure Flix. And you can get a copy of my novel, Cradle Robber, for just $3.99 on your favorite e-reader. The story today was inspired by many sources, including Ron Chernow's book Titan and the movie First Reformed, which may not be appropriate for all audiences. We'd love to hear how your church deals with money. Record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.